Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric, belated happy birthday to you uh, for a Saturday. Uh, I hope you had a fun time. And um, even though you're now approaching an age where the greatest gift is not having to get a new hip, I hope you had some nice birthday presents. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I got some uh, some decent presents. Although I'm a I'm a simple man, Kieran. I have little need for material goods. You know, give me a roof over my head, working TV and internet connections, and easy access to coffee, and I'm pretty well taken care of. Yeah, it's about the same as me, actually. Yeah, Not dissimilar. Right. Yeah. Look at us. We're so <laughs> we're so low maintenance. Um, but I, I did get uh, one good gift from my wife. She got me a fun boxing punching bag thingy, uh, mm-hmm. sort of an extra option for uh, old man workout routines. Um, but uh, but the best gift by far was one that I gave to myself uh, at at no small expense. Four tickets for the family to go see a certain rock and roller from New Jersey by the name of Bruce Springsteen. Accompanied by the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, booty-shaking, history-making, legendary E Street Band. Nice. Uh, We will be seeing them, uh, not in Philly, as I'd hoped, because I couldn't snag tickets to that one, but not too far away in State College, Pennsylvania, which has advantages in that that's a Saturday show, so we can make a day of it, tool around the Penn State campus for the day, go to the show at night. Uh, My three favorite people in the world will be with me, uh, as long as my daughter, who doesn't really care about Bruce one way or the other, is willing to go. Uh, but I wait, can't wait. Wait, and I get to go? <laughs> Only one of you. It's a real <laughs> Sophie's choice. <laughs> Listen, if my daughter decides not to go, actually, the fourth ticket has been sort of reserved if she decides not to go by my brother. But should that fall through, you and Bill can fight it out. Um, <laughs> but I will note that the ticket-buying process really sucked. Uh you remember Pearl Jam's fight against Ticketmaster in the 90s? Oh, God, yeah. Well, they lost, and they lost bad. Uh, yeah. So I paid more than I would have liked to for this experience. Uh, thanks, Obama. Uh, but the money is spent. The painful part is over. And the date is March 18th, 2023. As I said, it's a Saturday. So, Stephen Espinoza, I know you're listening. No major fights that night, okay? I've reserved the date. It's booked. Don't counter-program me. Right. I, I, I echo that sentiment, because it actually looks as if he says rapidly making the whole thing about him um <laughs> that i might actually be back in the arctic or at least on the fringes thereof all of february through about the first half of march so mm. not just march 18th but several weeks before that no big fights please yes all right so we're we're in agreement that whole chunk of time is is reserved and as far as making it all about you karen my birthday was yesterday uh, it's it's no longer go. my birthday. Go ahead and make it all about you. It's fine. The other thing also, I'm thinking of your little punch bag thing, and all the only word that comes to mind is Mandelbaum. Mandelbaum. <laughs> That's about how hard I hit these days. <laughs> all right. Coming up on the show, we will discuss the fallout from the shock cancellation of next week's scheduled Showtime pay-per-view uh, featuring Jake Paul and Amanda Serrano. And we're not at all bitter about all the prep that we had to do in advance <laughs> no. that we'd then joke. We're perfectly fine with it um we'll also look at the rest of the week's news including a pair of rumored exhibitions slash circus acts uh we have a mailbag and a few questions to answer thank you very much for those of you who sent in questions uh when we suddenly realized we had a big hole in our podcast i will present eric with a new top five challenge but before all of that to Brooklyn, where on Saturday night, Danny Garcia's first outing as a junior middleweight was a successful one as he cruised to a 12-round victory over Jose Benavidez Jr. 
cruised would seem the right word for this Showtime Championship boxing headliner, at least to you and to me. Not so much to official judge Waleska Roldan, who scored the fight 114-114, making it only a majority decision win for Garcia. The other judges had it 117-111 and 116-112. I had it 118-110 myself, although I acknowledge that in giving Garcia all six rounds in the first half of the fight, several of them were very close. So I can see how he can land around 116-112 maybe. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Benavidez in his second fight back after a three-year layoff, Fought better than he did in his disappointing 10-round draw last time out, but Garcia threw the sharper, shorter punches, did consistent body work, was on point with his counters. In short, he fought a typical Danny Garcia fight. It may have been a new weight class, but it was the same Danny Garcia, just too well-schooled for the wider-punching, less consistent Benavidez, whose record dips to 27-2-1 with 18 KOs, while Swift Garcia improves to 37-3 with 21 knockouts. So, Kieran... That 114-114 card notwithstanding, how was Garcia able to have such a comfortable evening against Benavidez? How much was down to what he did right, and how much was the result of what Benavidez did wrong? It's so funny that you expressed it the way you did, because what I wrote down here was that Danny Garcia was basically Danny Garcia. (laughs) Um, You know, he remained composed and compact. He countered when he could. He led when he was able to. He jabbed and hooked. He worked the body, moved in and out. Um, He was able to do what we've seen Danny Garcia do over and over. In fact, if anything, it was a little bit of, of Danny Garcia plus, you know, especially over the second half of the fight. Um, like he likes to counter, as we know, but he was able to take the lead, to set the pace, throw as many punches as he wanted to, move as much as he wanted to. He was honestly hardly bothered at all, particularly after the first couple of rounds. And I, and I, and I echo your sentiment there, that there were a couple of rounds early on that you could give to Benavidez before Garcia got totally in the groove. 17-11, 16-12 both seem perfectly reasonable scores to me, but nothing closer than 16-12, I don't think. Um, I think a lot of this was on Benavidez. It was really hard to believe watching this on Saturday night that he was once such a highly touted prospect. Um, I thought he was arrogant in the ring. Mm. He was lazy in the ring. Um, Look, I like Danny Garcia anyway. I like him as a boxer, as we've discussed. I, I like him as a person, as in as much as I know him. I like him even more now after he opened up and explained his mental health issues over the last 18 months. Um, but beyond all of that, during the fight, you know, when we watch these fights, we want to be as objective as possible. That's our job. But I found myself actively rooting against Benavidez because... Mm. He was just stalking forward, hands down, sticking out his tongue, smiling, talking, making noises. I wanted Garcia to smack him in the nose, and he did a lot. <laughs> um, but he just kept very calm about it, and it was only in that final round when victory was almost in the bag that he allowed himself to start taunting him back. Um, I was very, very, very disappointed in Benavidez. Um, he said he wants a rematch. He doesn't deserve one, and he no. shouldn't get one. And he said he wants to carry on with his career. But on the basis of these last couple of fights, unless he starts making more of an effort, unless there's something else there, he might as well not bother. Um, I, I really thought he was shockingly bad. Look, Danny Garcia was Danny Garcia, as you said. He went in there and he did what he wanted to do. But Benavidez just let him. Um, and yeah, I, I thought it was a very poor performance from Benavidez. And to the extent that it's, for me, I think it's a bit difficult to really assess where Garcia stands right now. We talked a little last week about what his end goal here was. 
and whether he could make much of an impression at 154. Tony Harrison wasted no time in calling him out. So little time, in fact, that he called him out while the fight was still happening. Right. Um, based on what we saw last night, would you like to see that next for Garcia? And, and do you feel it is a winnable proposition for him? Well, it doesn't sound like it's what Garcia himself wants next. Uh, he called out Keith Thurman, uh, wanting to avenge his first close defeat. Uh, and he also called out Eris Landy Lara. I'm not sure there's a lot to separate Lara and Harrison in terms of the marketability of the fight or the right. threat to Garcia. Honestly, these are all competitive fights. I might make Garcia a small favorite over Tony Harrison because he's the more technically sound and consistent yeah. fighter. Lara or Thurman, they both feel like coin flips against Garcia at this time and at this weight. They're all solid fights. Danny Garcia, this is who he is. He will beat all of the B-level guys. You know, the one yep. semi-outlier being his debatable decision over Mauricio Herrera. Uh, but otherwise, he always gets the job done pretty comfortably against the B-level guys. He'll lose to the A-plus pound-for-pound level guys like Errol Spence. And then the A's and A-minuses. Thurman, Porter, Lamont Peterson. Those are basically even fights for the judges to decide. Mm. Danny Garcia, he's definitely undersized for this division. That that leapt out at you watching him in the ring. He weighed yeah. in at 152 and three quarters. He didn't look like a junior middleweight. He was lucky to be in against another smallish 154-pounder in Benavides in terms of not seeming overly outmatched size-wise. That wouldn't be the case against Lara or Harrison. Those guys are full 154-pounders. I thought he looked very good, not great, which, honestly, that's what we end up saying after most Danny Garcia fights, mm. it feels like. But, you know, to echo what we've both already pretty much said, he, he's the same fighter at this age and this weight that he always was. I do wonder if the impact of his punches is just going to be a little diminished at 154. As you said, yeah. in this fight against this opponent, it was hard to go to and make any, like, definitive judgments about any of that but um one thing that i have to single out is just my favorite moment of this fight in the fifth round benavidez threw a couple of clumsy looking punches not very graceful and garcia mocked his punching technique <laughs> exactly the way old man eric morales once mocked garcia's punches about a decade ago that, that amused me a little uh, what goes around comes around kind of thing there but uh, it sounds sounds from uh, your assessment of benavidez's performance like you were kind of happy to see him get mocked uh yeah i wasn't uh, yeah it was it was weird because i thought he was very graceful and gracious mm -hmm. in the post fight and and he, he often can be i just i just don't know what happened to him sometimes you know i think you see boxes adopt that kind of attitude when they've almost kind of made a decision within themselves that they're not going to win the fight and they're not even necessarily going to make the effort. So what they're going to do is kind of do this, this stage act to make it appear as if they think that they're winning the fight and they're in control and, and so on and so forth. And I, I wonder if there was an element of that going on with, with Benavides there, because he's just he's never particularly struck me as that kind of a person before, but I just, I don't know. I just, I mean, even the Steve Willis was, was talking to them to try and get him to stop with the nonsense and, and, right. and get on with it. And um, so, yeah, I, I was disappointed by that. But I like the fact that Garcia just, you know, he's been there before, hasn't he? I mean, um, you know, he's used to his dad, for heaven's sake. So he can he can do <laughs> all kind of histrionics. And right. he just he just went about his business and, and got it done. And, and you can't ask for more than that. Yeah, and, and you touched for just a second on Garcia bringing up his mental health issues afterwards. I, I wasn't sure whether uh, you were going to bring that up or whether we were going to talk about it, but I'll, I'll just note that I found it particularly powerful and, and emotional when he said, 
I'm just letting it out right now. That yeah. really resonated. Um, it's weird. Like, it's great that more people are coming forward and talking about going through this stuff. And every time someone does, it encar- encourages other people to talk about it. And that's a good thing. At the same time, I'll acknowledge, I'm sure there are people whose reaction is to start questioning it at a certain point to basically feel like, you know, so, sort of like what I say about alphabet belts. If everyone is a champion, then no one is a champion. Mm. I could see people feeling like if everyone has mental health issues, then nobody has mental health issues. I hope I'm not creating a straw man argument here by assuming some people are having that reaction, but that's kind of my assumption. And I'm if someone's instinct is to roll their eyes when they hear Danny name check after the fight, seemingly from out of nowhere, words like anxiety, depression, mental health, mm. I can understand it if that's somebody's instinct to, to question it. But it just in this case, if you actually watched this interview and saw his emotion, I don't think it's possible to be skeptical about this. I'm certainly no expert in this field. You're much closer to it than I am, Kieran. I'm just kind of spewing a few of the thoughts that went through my mind watching Danny Garcia release all of that in, in the post-fight interview. But it just struck me as a, as a really powerful moment. And as far as the public knew from out of nowhere really yeah i i've got to say that i i didn't know that he'd been he'd been going through these issues and i've got to say it really i got emotional watching it as mm. somebody who um I, i've only ever i've talked about like the mental health issues that i've had recently and and i think it hinted that last year was especially awful right. for me personally and um and so it, it was really bad um i'm happy that I'm still here, let's put it that way, because that wasn't a given 15 months ago. And to see somebody, it was, wasn't even, the fact that it was talked about the same time scale really kind of resonated with me. And I recognize that, I recognize that emotion that hmm. suddenly somebody's in front of you and you're talking about it, like you've got, you've dealt with what you had to get through. That was somebody who just suddenly was like, oh crap, where's, I'm crying and, I wasn't expecting this, and, and I and I thought that that really resonated, and and I thought it was really genuine. And you're right, you know. I mean, there are still people who are absolutely going to roll their eyes and have have that kind of reaction. And it's just simply because I think there is a, a sort of snowball effect that people, as with each person like Danny Garcia or or Brian Garcia or um, you know or whoever who um, are, are feel able to talk about it, then that means one other person is able to talk about it. And suddenly you think, well, now suddenly everybody's had mental health problems. No, lots of people have mental health problems. It's just that more people are able to talk about it now and address it. And and I think that's a really important thing. And when you see a guy who's just gone through a damn fight for 12 rounds, talk about this kind of anxiety of, of just everyday life, I would hope that it, it would help people realize that, yeah, this, these are real issues that, that real people go through. So, yeah, it, it definitely struck me. I know that much. Yeah. Well, I, I should hope this would uh, go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. I'm happy you're still here, Kieran. I am too. There was a period where I wasn't sure that I was, but I am. Good. So. All right. Well, uh, kind of hard to transition from that back into boxing, but that's what we do sometimes, <laughs> the awkward transitions. Let's analyze the co-feature on Saturday night in which Ali Aaron Demirazin withstood a strong start from Adam Kaunatsky to generally take over, outwork, outland, outfight, and outbox him and secure a unanimous decision win in a 10-round heavyweight contest. Scores were 97-93 twice and 96-94. The latter score matched mine, and the third round seemed a real swing I didn't think 
any of the other nine rounds were very difficult to score. Mm. Anyway, Demirazin, a former Olympian from Turkey, moves to 17-1 and one with 12 KOs, while Kalnatsky drops his third in a row. He began his career 20-0 and 0 and is now at 20-3 and 3 with 15 stoppages. I was right about one thing in this fight when I predicted that it would be sloppy fun, <laughs> but I was wrong in thinking that Kavnatsky would win. Uh, you also picked Kavnatsky. The sports books had it right. Uh, we had it wrong. It was a, a close fight, but Demirazin was the clear winner. Kieran, how did he do it? And is this the end of the road for Kavnatsky? How did he do it? He did it by essentially being kind of like slow and steady. Um, and that sort of enabled him to, to ride out those opening couple of rounds when, when Kanachki was, was going at full bore. And he had this revolutionary game-changing idea to throw his punches straight um, instead of wide and looping, which was a concept that Kanachki's never quite grasped. Right. Um, look, he's not particularly good, Demirizan, but... I think where you and I probably both sold him short is that he does at least have some technical ability. And if you have that modicum of technical ability and you can withstand an early barrage, you've got a pretty decent shot against Kanachki. And and Kanachki just didn't seem to have the wherewithal to respond, honestly. Yeah. I mean, what he has, he has this ability to overwhelm opponents with volume punching. I mean, that, that fight with Chris Ariola, who's another guy who tries to overwhelm me with, with volume punching, was tremendous fun. Um, but the punches he throws in bunches, they're not crisp, they're not snappy, they're not especially impactful, certainly not fast. Um, and while he's throwing them, he's not defending himself. And so if his opponent can soak up that early punishment, he's in trouble. I agree with you about the third round. Like, Clearly, Kanachki won those first two. And then in that third round, he Kanachki was still throwing a lot more punches, but Demerison kept popping him with those straight with those straight punches. And I yeah. thought, hello, there's a bit of a change happening here. And and Kanachki just didn't a- adapt, you know, and that's what happened to him against Hellenius. But we thought, well, I know Hellenius is a big, tall guy. He's an awkward style. Maybe he's an aberration. And I think we both felt that Demerison, being a come-forward-ish kind of guy of a similar size who'd stand in front of him, would be, you know, a little bit meat and drink, a, a nice opportunity for Kanachki to get back in the win column. But uh, but no, um, just simply by showing the fundamentals and showing a lot of toughness as well and grit, uh, realizing that he had to get through that early barrage, right. uh, Demirism was able to, to be victorious. Um, Kanachki was fun while he lasted. Um, and he's clearly a hugely likable fellow, but he's clearly hit a ceiling. Yeah. And... You know, he, he said he doesn't want to go out like this, and, and I understand that. But he also, my interpretation of it wasn't that, oh, I've got to keep going. Like It felt like a, I better find another win before I go home to my family and kids and retire. Uh, if he's not going to be able to tighten up his defense or become more technically proficient, uh, Adam Kanachki is probably going to have to start looking for something else to do, I think. Yeah, he's very clearly found his level and we were wrong to think that that level was a half notch above Demirazin. Turns yeah. out it was a half notch below, but yeah, I mean that, that line that he said afterwards, it was kind of funny in its own way when he said, I definitely don't want to go out like this, a fucking loser. Um, <laughs> but yeah, how, how to interpret that, whether that just means, like you said, he just kind of wants to come back with a win and then maybe he's done or is he going to hang around a little while longer? Because, you know, it's rare, unfortunately, that a boxing career ends in this spot as soon as a fighter should realize that 
the middle is as high as he's going to go. Most guys yeah. hang around in that middle for a while, unfortunately. So that's, yeah, that's the tough decision that he faces now. Do I want to hang around knowing that the middle is kind of a, a, as high as I'm going to get here? Yeah. Uh, in the opener, Gary Antoine Russell maintained his perfect professional record, moving to 16-0 with 16 KOs, with a sixth-round TKO of veteran Francis Barthelemy, who falls to 29-2-1 with 15 KOs. Eric, you picked Russell to win by knockout, but before we go any further in discussing the fight, I'm assuming you have some thoughts you'd like to share on that stoppage. You assume correctly, my friend. Uh, <laughs> that was a horrendous stoppage. Russell landed a sudden leaping southpaw right hook to the temple, and Barthelemy went down, definitely a bit short-circuited. His legs weren't mm -hmm. quite right. He got up, still finding his legs a bit, takes a few steps to the corner, a couple steps back toward referee Shade Murdaugh, presented his gloves, stood steady in front of Murdaugh, did what you're supposed to do, and Murdaugh looked in his eyes and waved it off. And Barthelemy was in disbelief, as was I, uh, despite whatever small aid it might have provided me in the picks competition. Although maybe not. Maybe he robbed me of the exact ninth round maybe. KO that I predicted. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this was an absolute dog shit stoppage in a competitive fight. If Russell was winning every round and in total control, and then his power broke through like this, I might not have minded it quite so much. But this was a competitive fight for five rounds. The guy took one punch. His equilibrium was off, but his equilibrium got better over the course of those 10 seconds. You have to let the fight continue and see how he defends himself and what happens next. This isn't one of those stoppages where you say, well, he was probably going to stop him soon anyway. We just have no idea. Maybe yeah. Russell stops him two punches later. Maybe he stops him two rounds later. Maybe Barthelemy comes back and wins. We have no way of knowing. And Barthelemy trainer Orlando Cuellar made the point very well in the post-fight interview, saying the stoppage not only robbed Barthelemy and robbed the fans, it also robbed Russell of a chance yeah. to more definitively win a tough fight and prove what he's made of. Uh, Showtime did a Twitter poll, and 88% of Twitter did not agree with the stoppage, which means 12% of Twitter are either trolls or are named Gary Russell, which admittedly, <laughs> there are a lot of Gary Russells. Um, anyway, this rant leads to my pick for tweet of the week. It's from at Nadim El Haddad one who tweeted shortly after the stoppage boxing Twitter campaigning to see more of a Rancis Barthelemy fight. World's coming to an end. <laughs> Excellent flagging of irony there. And, and yes, undoubtedly, the world is coming to an end. Uh, add this to the long list of signs. Uh, so, uh, okay, Kieran, that covers my thoughts on this atrocious stoppage. Let me get your take on what led up to it. Uh, in the sixth round, Russell showed his power and his ability to transform a contest with one punch. But up until that point, Barthelemy was causing him real problems. Steve Farhood had Russell up by just one point at the time of the stoppage. Did you agree? How was Barthelemy able to have such success? And what does this fight say about Russell's future progression? Yeah, I think at times we've discussed Antoine's fights and we've been really impressed, not just with his power punching, but with his overall skill set. I, I, I think it was the Giovanni Santiago fight where afterwards we were discussing it and we were like, oh yeah, this guy is good. Not just because he hits hard, but it was the way he moved in the ring, the way he set up his punches. He, he really looked like 
he had everything. Uh, but I felt to me a little bit like he was getting away from that on Sunday, he, mm. on Saturday. He he looked to me like he was falling in love a little bit with his power too much, which can happen eh, with, with people who score a lot of knockouts, especially early in their career. I, I, I thought he was squaring up too much and loading up too much and, and, and flinging power punches without setting them up properly. Uh, he gets a pass this time because his camp was clearly a disrupted one right. for obvious reasons, but you wouldn't expect a member of the Russell family to allow their technique to crumble the way that I thought he was doing at times. But look, credit is also due to Bartholomew. I mean, this is why I picked the fight to go the distance because, and I will never know again whether it would have gone the distance. I was robbed too. That was the most important aspect. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but, you know, because Bartholomew, he's crafty and he's clever and he's technically good. He was varying up his distance quite well. And so I think it was very difficult. Russell couldn't get comfortable with when exactly to throw his power punches or when to be set. Um, you know, because he, he wasn't quite able to judge that distance perfectly. Um, so sometimes he was falling short and other times he was falling into his punches because, you know, uh, uh, Bartholomew was kind of closing that distance. He had a slightly awkward stance to his, the way that he held his hands was a little awkward to try and land anything cleanly. And he was turned at times almost sideways on to present as small a target as possible. And he was working behind a nice jab. So it all served to confuse Russell, I thought, at times. And, and even to allow him to walk into a couple of punches because he was so focused on his own offense uh, somewhat. Um, look, like I said, I think he deserves a bit of a pass this time. Um, but... He does need to return to those fundamentals that he has, that the entire family has, um, and and not fall too much in love with his power. Because if he starts trying to just do what I feel like he was trying to do on Saturday night and just go in there and try to take his opponent's head off without showing the technique that enables that to happen, there are some very, very good boxers in the upper echelons of 140 pounds who will take him apart mm. if presented with those same opportunities, I think. Um, so... We picked the same winner for all three fights, but on each occasion by different means of victory. So there was the possibility of a real movement in our picks competition, but in the end, everything stayed pretty much as it was. Um, in the main event, I picked Garcia by unanimous decision. You said by ninth round TKO. I should have had three points, but thanks to Waleska Roldan apparently being <laughs> on your payroll, I only got two. So you're one. Uh, neither of us got any points for Demirizan's win over Konachki. In the opener, you picked a Russell ninth round TKO, and I picked a unanimous decision. And because Shada Murta is also on your payroll, you get two <laughs> points to my one. Although apparently the check hasn't yet cleared, which is why he stopped it as early as he did. Right, so right. yeah, no, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. He's on your payroll. I'll 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 accept that uh, Roldan is on my payroll. Can't deny that one. But no, nah, I'm I'm thinking Murda's on yours. Uh, all right, okay. Well, we each get three points, which leaves me just in front still, fifty-nine to fifty-eight. Um. We're going to go straight to the news now, because this is the part of the podcast where we were going to preview next Saturday's Showtime pay-per-view from Madison Square Garden, featuring Jake Paul against Haseem Rachman Jr. But on Saturday night, uh, just as you were enjoying your birthday party <laughs> feast or whatever you were up to, <laughs> uh, news emerged that that fight 
And indeed, the whole card was off. Um, Paul was the first out of the gate with a statement, which blamed Rackman for not doing the work required to lose the weight he needed to. Um, when the contract was signed, it was with an agreement to fight at 200 pounds, uh, which we knew would require Rackman to lose a chunk of weight, but that's what he agreed to. Um, but according to the statement from Paul's MVP promotions, quote, on Friday, Rackman submitted a weight check to the New York State Athletic Commission that demonstrated he had lost less than a pound. This prompted the commission to declare that it would not sanction the fight for less than 205 pounds. Paul says he agreed to fight at 205 and forwarded a new contract only for Rackman's camp to say he would not weigh less than 215 pounds at the weigh-in. As a result, said Paul's team statements, they decided they, quote, will not reward someone that has conducted themselves in such a deceiving and calculated manner. Boy, is he in for a big disappointment as he gets deeper into the boxing <laughs> business. Um, therefore, MVP is left with no choice but to cancel the August 6th event. Uh, Rackman's team, understandably, has a different take on how things went down. Rackman's promoter, Greg Cohen, telling Dan Raphael that Rackman weighed 232 pounds when he signed the contract and had, in fact, lost weight, but over the last few days was unable to drop below 214, 215 pounds and was starting to feel dizzy with the effort. Uh, said Cohen, rather than BS anybody, I contacted MVP and was transparent. Junior was willing to fight Jake for zero purse, but still with money coming from his sponsors, and stick to the second day weigh-in, agreed upon weight, uh, that was 215 pounds, but he knew he would not be able to make 205 pounds. Obviously, it's extremely disappointing. Junior worked very hard and was having an incredible camp. Team Paul dodged a bullet with this one. Uh, very different interpretations. Eric, who's to blame for this? Well, uh, I mean, it's a he said, he said with regard to Rachman's weight and, and where that weight started and yeah. how hard it was to get down and whether it was an honest miscalculation or not. I know who's not to blame for this falling through. Jake Paul. He yep. did nothing wrong. He signed for the fight. He trained, conducted himself professionally. And if indeed he offered to raise the limit five pounds, good for him. He didn't even have to do that. But when you're a 190-pound fighter who has agreed to a 200-pound limit and your opponent says with a week to go, let's make it 215, you know, it would be irresponsible to himself for Jake Paul to say okay yeah. to that. Whatever the truth behind Rockman's weight, Paul did absolutely nothing wrong here. And almost feel bad for him. I, I can't quite feel bad for him because the guy has such a charmed life, but just in terms <laughs> of his career as a professional boxer, I feel bad for him. He trained, he did his part, he took a very risky fight, given what a novice yep. he is, and first Tommy Fury pulls out, then Rachman does. So, Jake Paul, zero blame from me. How much blame do we give Rachman or his team? There's a discrepancy on what Rockman's weight was when the fight was signed. Paul says he was 216 pounds. Rockman says he was at 232. I can't square that. Somebody is full of crap. I yeah. can't really speculate who it is. Maybe Rockman knew all along he couldn't get down to 200 pounds and he was BSing and the plan all along was to get Paul to agree to a higher weight at the last yeah. minute. Or maybe he fully believed he'd make it and he's been training as hard as he can. And he just can't get down below 215. The weight just stops coming off at that point. Only he knows. I will say, this is really disappointing. I watched the All Access. I'd succeeded in getting myself psyched for this fight. <laughs> I thought it was a fun betting fight. If Paul won, it would legitimately prove something. There was also a real chance of a replay of Butterbean versus Bart Gunn. You know, actual yeah. guy who knows how to box <laughs> knocks novice out cold. 
So I was really starting to look forward to it. Uh, anyway, uh, what, what about you, Karen? Do you have a more clear sense here than I do of who to believe and who to blame? Oh, who to believe? No. I mean, but yes, the, the bulk of the blame, it has to fall on Ruckman and indeed on his team. Look, if he really weighed 232 pounds, as he says, uh, you know, 31 days as it would have been before the fight, mm. knowing that he had just 31 days to make 200, he shouldn't have signed that contract. Unless, like you said, he did so with fully with the intention of something like this unfolding. Um, right. He posted a couple of videos himself. Um, and, and he again said, you know, he weighed 230 and he said that many would have to lose a pound a day for a month and, you know, made it sound like that was you know, a ridiculous thing to ask. But again, he was the one who signed that contract. Right. <laughs> so, um, and honestly, even if he had done that, then you wonder, well, God, what kind of a state would he been in and, and how healthy would that have been? Um, you know, you could argue that heck the ball team probably knew exactly that he wouldn't be able to make it. And if he could make it, he'd be in a terrible state. So there's an element of that as well. Um, you know, and he can say, look, well, we would have weighed 215 on the Saturday, like the contract said, but the contract said you'd weigh 200 on the Friday. And that's right. really important. And Jake Paul was prepared to shift that to 205. Rackman also said something like, hey, he claimed he beat me up in sparring when I weighed 230. So why not just take the fight and prove he can beat me at 215? And A, that was sparring. B, Jake Paul, like everyone in boxing, is a bullshitter. And C, he shouldn't have to because it wasn't the contract. Right. But um, I guess if there's one thing that I would take a little bit of issue with, you know, it's I totally get that he would want to ca cancel the fight with Rackman. Did that mean the whole card had to be canceled? Um, you know, could you not have found an opponent? Could you not have gone to Gordon Hall and said, find me a cruiserweight who can fight a little bit, but not enough who I can, who I can face in the main event and keep the card, you know, cause that's, if you want to be a professional boxer. That's one of the things you have to deal with sometimes and better professional boxers than Jake Paul have had to take on last minute replacements. It's, it's just kind of the way of things. Um, I get it. Like he didn't, again, he didn't have to. He's a massive A-side and he shouldn't, you know, doesn't have to do it. But that's the one kind of thing that I take a little bit of issue to issue with. But I also understand that this is now the third time in a row right. that an opponent for this particular fight has fallen out. And whatever one might say about Jake Paul, it's pretty obvious that he's taking this seriously. And he's working really hard in the gym and he's carrying the promotion and he's actually being the promoter. So I do get. If he's just like, why the hell is everybody else around me like this in this business? I'm taking my toys and going home. Um, that's the one thing I would think about is, did it have to be canceled a week out the whole card? But at the same time, Jake Paul is fully entitled to say, I didn't, I'm a five and oh guy and I've never faced an actual boxer. Don't right. make me shift opponents five days out, six days out. That's asking for trouble. He's fully entitled to say that. Um, Ultimately, who's to blame for this? Tommy Fury. Tommy Fury. Is the there you go. Yes. In a way, uh, butterfly effect. Yes, it's it all comes back to him. Um, and, and this really does suck for the, for all the undercard fighters. And so if not the solution that you would have liked to have seen of uh, Gordon Hall helps uh, Jake Paul find a, a short notice replacement opponent, hopefully there can be another partial solution in terms of maybe Showtime can find some other undercard or showbox sure. slots for these fights in the coming yeah. weeks so that those training camps weren't totally in vain.
Logan Paul had a good night on Saturday night, I understand. I don't really follow WWE anymore, but apparently he killed it at SummerSlam. Oh, did he? I was unaware of that. <laughs> wow, you guys are, Eli just must not care anymore. You must have moved past that phase of life. Well, so he, he's away at, at summer camp, but uh, but also, ah. yes, uh, doesn't we don't, haven't watched wrestling in several years, uh, really, other than ordering the network for one month to watch WrestleMania and then canceling it, which we didn't even do that this year. Um mm. But uh, as you know, Kieran, I was internet dark on Saturday night while out celebrating my birthday. So other than you texting me to let me know what was going on with Paul and Rachman, <laughs> whatever Logan Paul was up to, I was okay. blissfully unaware. Yes. Yeah, I and indeed I did not watch it myself. Uh, I only know that of all people, Lou DiBella tweeted about it. So Lou DiBella <laughs> right. was watching SummerSlam instead of the Showtime card. Apparently. <laughs> Uh-oh. So we're going to have to talk to Lou about that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. Our news co-main event pairs two possible exhibitions slash farces slash fun days out, uh, depending on your perspective. Floyd Mayweather seems to always have his name tied to one exhibition or another, and the latest rumors have him preparing to once again face Conor McGregor, although it's uncertain whether it would be an exhibition or a sanctioned bout. And the reporting on this whole thing is shaky, to put it mildly. It was first reported by a Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid in the UK, then repeated by a pair of other British tabloids, and then dismissed out of hand by McGregor's employer, Dana White, as, quote, bullshit. Uh, the other rumored fight probably deserves to be taken more seriously, because it's been reported by our friend Gareth Davies of The Telegraph, who wrote earlier this week that Tyson Fury is in talks for a November exhibition bout with Haftor Bjornsson, who won the World's Strongest Man contest in 2018, but is best known for portraying the mountain on Game of Thrones, which airs on, or previously aired on some network that we don't mention. Uh, Kieran, how seriously do you take either of these? Are Fury and Mayweather bored or broke or both? What do you make of all this? Yeah, I think Fury might be bored, or rather he's struggling with the idea of stepping away from the ring, maybe, right? Like, he knows that it makes sense, but as we've seen countless times before, the pull is very, very strong. Uh, He is, I suspect, maybe holding out hope that Anthony Joshua wins the rematch with Alexander Usyk to give him one more massive payday, but I doubt that anything else in a professional boxing ring holds much interest for him, but... You know, the man's a showman and he's probably already missing the limelight a little bit. And I honestly suspect he's looking to have some fun and get the adrenaline rush of attention um, while forcing himself to stay in training for his mental health and and, and get paid. Um, so, I don't know, maybe it's as much about keeping him healthy and happy as well as paid as in, and in the public eye. Um, mm. in, in, in Gareth's piece, Fury described the idea as being, quote, a bit of fun. Um, and I love Bjornsson's quote to Gareth, though. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to put on an Icelandic accent or whatever, <laughs> but uh, would I get, would I, and there is, you know, if, if uh, parents have kids listening, mm. uh, this is, this is the time to send them out to the kitchen or down the mines or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what you do with children. so <laughs> I, I... Not down the mines. As a parent, let me uh, interrupt and just okay, say, we no don't send legal, children right? down the mines. Okay. No. Not legal anymore. Okay. <laughs> okay. But anyway, so his quote was, would I get beat? Probably, but I would not give a fuck. I would do my best, and who fucking knows? I'm fucking strong, and my punches hurt. So if it happens, you can't take it easy, because I'm a warrior, I'm a Viking, and I'm going all in. (laughs) Um, Also, Tyson Fury, just make sure you don't let him put 
his thumbs on your eyes. Yes. That's just not going to work out. For you. <laughs> I was specifically thinking, make sure you're wearing gloves with attached thumbs. Exactly. That's key for this fight. Yes. Um, incidentally, Gareth's story also mentions this is nothing relevant at all, but it also mentions that we've just got time to fill, so I thought I'd throw it in there. Bjornsson used to weigh uh, 31 stone, which, if my calculation is correct, is 430 pounds. Right. But he's now slimmed all the way down to 23 stone, which I believe is 320 pounds. Um, he's definitely a big man, and I'm sure his punches do hurt. Uh, but you'd have to land one first, and that's not going to be happening. Um, do, do we think he could get down to 205 in a week? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, if he cut off all his limbs, perhaps. Right. But yeah, flesh wound. Um <laughs> Mayweather motivations, I feel like they're a bit easier to discern. I don't think he's as complicated. He craves money and attention. That's it. I don't think there's anything more complex than that. And I think that's probably why he's been returning to these exhibitions lately. And few things would give him more of both right now than a McGregor rematch. Mm. There's still a segment of mostly MMA fans that genuinely seems to believe that McGregor was competitive in the first fight. Um, that said the vehemence with which Dana White shot it down, plus its provenance, you know, from a Murdoch tabloid that's well known for its lies and bad reporting. I suspect that this one at least is wide of the mark. The, some of the other exhibitions that have been rumored seem to be a bit more likely. So anyway, um, our news undercard is mostly fights that have been signed or confirmed. Uh, Shakur Stevenson's next bout against Robson Concesao will be a homecoming affair in Newark, New Jersey on September 23rd, and the unified 130-pound title holder says that it might be his last outing at that weight. Um, the Gennady Golovkin-promoted middleweight Ali Akhmadov will take on Gabriel Rosado on the undercard of Golovkin's trilogy bout with Canelo Alvarez. Junior welterweight champion Josh Taylor's rematch with Jack Catterall, whom he defeated via an exceptionally controversial decision in February, looks to be set or looked to be set for November 26th. But boxing is boxing. Uh, Catterall is promoted by Probellum, I believe, who is present, which is presently suing Boxer, which co-promoted their first bout, with which guy in the UK has an exclusive agreement. And I don't know, that make poor cold water over all of that, you know, boxing, whatever. Yeah. Um, and undefeated minimum weight and junior flyweight titleist Sinisa Superbad Estrada, who had been promoted by Golden Boy for much of her pro career, has signed a multi-year agreement with Top Rank. Uh, Eric, a bit of a mixture of news items there. Please provide an in-depth assessment. I'm, I'm not sure I'm capable of that. I can do a shallow assessment. Will that, ah, will that suffice? Okay. Yeah, that's much better. Much more in keeping with the nature of this podcast. Right. Uh, so, Stevenson Conceição, September 23rd. You know what's notable about that date? No. It's Bruce Springsteen's birthday. I have a problem, ah. Kieran, clearly. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> I send him cards? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the restraining order won't allow it. Ah, okay. Yes. Uh, I will say uh, on a serious note about this fight, I like hearing Shakur tease that he might be done at 1.30 after this, because let's face it, the most compelling potential fights for him are at 1.35. Yeah. Um, Akhmadov Rosado, um, have you noticed that BoxRec is loading really slowly lately? Has that been happening for you? I've just noticed that it's just a very, it's a change in format and all kinds of stuff going on. So um, yeah, I, I haven't noticed loading slowly, but I have noticed that things are a wee bit different there. Yeah. Well, I've I've had to deal with uh, slow loading, which is my excuse for having nothing to say about Akhmadov Rosado. Uh, so moving on to <laughs> Taylor Catterall too. Uh, yeah, basically what you said, how very boxing. Uh, and it might just give Taylor the excuse he needs not to bother with that rematch, which would be kind of a shame for Catterall. Um, Sinicia Estrada, very good fighter, and 
What I find interesting about this is that apparently Michaela Mayer, the only other female fighter currently under contract to Top Rank, played a big role in talking to Estrada and convincing her to sign with Top Rank. However, uh, Mayer also reportedly convinced Estrada to join Twitter. So kind of a mixed bag with listening to (laughs) Michaela Mayer. Um, We've got a couple of other fights that, as far as we know, are actually happening next weekend. Um, On the zone, unbeaten welterweight contender. I think we can call him a contender. Virgil Ortiz Jr. takes on Michael McKinson atop an interesting card that also sees Marlon Esparza face Ava Guzman. Uh, Blair the Flair Cobbs attempt to bounce back from his recent KO loss. Uh, He's facing Maurice Hooker. And talking of comebacks, Michael Condon looks to rebound from his loss to Lee Wood against Miguel Mariaga in Belfast. A tough comeback fight, that. Uh, Anything leap out at you there? Yeah, that's a decent collection of fights to help fill the Paul Rockman card void. Um, I'm a big fan of Virgil Ortiz, of course. I'd watch him fight a tumbleweed, which uh, McKinson is better than a tumbleweed, although I'm not sure he hits any harder than one with two KOs in his 22 wins. Uh, But he's undefeated. He has skill. He's a southpaw. And again, it's Virgil Ortiz. So I am interested no matter what. Esparza Guzman is solid on paper. Hooker and Cobbs, they're both coming off losses. Almost a loser leaves town situation, at least in terms of fighting against contenders going forward. But the most interesting fighter in action next weekend to me is Mick Conlon. And I think I said this when this fight was first signed, but I'll, I'll repeat it. I'm so much more interested in him now coming off that loss to Wood than I was following any of his victories. He he was starting to turn into just a gimmick. You know, the the guy who flipped the judges the bird. Now he poses for pictures flipping the bird. Oh, yeah, he's also a boxer, but he's not terribly interesting as a boxer. So let's just talk about that middle finger thing. That's who he was. Now he's given us something to talk about besides just the gimmick. So I look forward to his fight with Mariaga and, of course... I love me a good afternoon on the East Coast start time. Indeed. Okay, moving on. Uh, As you said at the top of the show, Kieran, we suddenly found ourselves with a giant hole in this week's podcast where a pay-per-view preview segment should have been. So we put out an emergency Saturday night mailbag call, and you, the listeners, responded with some fine questions on short notice. Thanks to all of you who sent some in. We've picked three to answer, and we begin with one from Haroldo Letterman (laughs) at One Puncher's Chance. Seconded by Bernie Bernstein at Bernie Burns 10, quote, best boxing book ever written, question mark. And Bernie, in seconding this question, broadened it out to say he, quote, would love some boxing specific reading recommendations. So, uh, Kieran, your boxing book picks. I have three personal favorites, Uh, one that's extremely well known and two that are less so. The extremely well known one is one that I actually mentioned last week during my top five list, and that's The Fight by Norman Mailer. Um, at his best, Mailer could be just a wonderful, effortlessly descriptive writer. Granted, at his worst, he could be a pretentious blowhard, but such is life. Um, in my opinion, he's, he was at his best here. Uh, this first-hand account of the rumble in, in the jungle, I, I think it's illuminating, it's gripping. Uh, it's a wonderful window into what was a remarkable episode, even by boxing standards. Um, that would be probably my number one recommendation. Uh, in a similar vein, another book about a specific fight that I love is by my friend Kevin Mitchell, who recently retired after many years as boxing and tennis writer for The Guardian and, and The Observer. The book is War Baby, War, comma, Baby, as opposed to War Baby. Um, <laughs> and that's primarily an account of the brutality and aftermath of the Nigel Ben Gerald McClellan mm. clash. Um, 
extraordinary fight with with amazing extraordinary results and a terrific book and one that a lot of people may not have heard of that i really like uh one of the first books that i read when i was getting into boxing um it's called this bloody mary is the last thing i own by jonathan rendell Hmm. which has this great opening line it was a few hours after Frank Bruno attacked me in the Betty Boop's bar at the MGM Grand that I decided to get out of boxing. I just think that's such a good opening line. Um, it's a wonderful account of someone who found himself almost by accident uh, as a boxing manager. And, and I think a lot of it rings true to a lot of us who have somehow stumbled into boxing and found ourselves in different situations where we've thought to ourselves, the hell am I doing here? I think we've all had those moments, and this book is full of, of those moments. And um, it's one of the books that I, I absolutely recommend. So, are any of them the absolute best book written on boxing? I don't know, but they're three of my personal favorites. Hmm. I have read one of those. I've read the Norman Mailer book, and uh, okay. it was a while ago, but I do remember uh, quite liking it. Um, as far as uh, my favorite boxing book, I should start with the caveat that I mostly retired from reading books about 15 years ago. Um, it's funny. <laughs> I loved reading books as a kid. I got out of the habit in high school and college, and then books made a little comeback in my life when I was in my 20s. Mm. And then since I started having kids, combined with the rise of podcasts and streaming shows to watch, etc., I average like a book a year. It's quite pathetic. Right. Um Second caveat, uh, part of me just wants to recommend boxing books by my friends, like right. Ezra Charles' A Boxing Life by Bill Detloff or Boxing Babylon by Nigel Collins. So uh, here's my answer in terms of my favorite boxing book by someone I never met personally is Dark Trade by Donald McRae. That is an excellent one. You're right. Yeah. Yes. I, I read it almost 25 years ago, so I can't like say with total certainty that it holds up, but I assume it does. I definitely loved it when I first read it, Dark Trade. That's a, a personal favorite for me, but I admit to not having read nearly as many boxing books as I should have. Mm, and uh, still a wonderful interviewer as well, Donald McRae. Just yeah. just really, really good stuff. Yes, that is an excellent, excellent book. Not exactly a laugh riot, but no. an excellent book. <laughs> right. Um, here's a question from Unfair Isle, at Unfair underscore Isle, I-S-L-E. What do you think about having a ref as a commentator during fights, uh, in parentheses, consulted intermittently at least? They could provide perspective on the ref's in-ring decisions. Well, it's a good idea in theory. Um, There are some referees or or former referees who have done commentary. Steve Smoger has done a bit of ringside scoring, as has Larry Hazard Sr., and they're there to chime in on the refereeing if needed. Now, when I did some ringside scoring for PBC on NBC, several of those shows, Smoger was there as well, specifically in the role that Unfair Isle suggests. He was there to chime in on a rules situation or to analyze a referee's decision. And he was very good at it, but I'm not sure the network was getting much bang for its buck. You mm. might hear like two chime-ins from Steve for like 15 or 20 seconds apiece in a two-hour broadcast. It's great to have in theory, but I don't know how practical it is. I think about the way the NFL does it. You know, they have the guy in a studio somewhere who Mm. they cut to for analysis when there's like an instant replay review situation. But I think that's one guy in a studio who's available to be brought into any of several games going on at once. I don't know. Bottom line, you know, you add a guy to the broadcast crew just to give a ref's perspective you're paying for his flights, his hotel, etc. And he might sit there all night and say nothing. If there happens to be an ex-referee who 
has a great personality and is a great talker and could just be your color analyst. You know, ideally, if he was like a fighter and then he became a referee and so he can break down the fight and what the ref might be thinking. Awesome. You know, if that person exists, that's someone to consider for a color analyst job. But otherwise, you know, your ringside scorer is supposed to know the rules and can weigh in on a rules situation and a ref as an extra commentator seems a tough expense to justify. Um, But this question gets me thinking about just one quick sort of related note. Um, It annoys me to no end when a commission won't let the referee speak to the broadcaster after a controversial fight. This happened on Saturday. Jim Gray wanted to talk to Murdaugh, but the New York commission wouldn't allow it. I would have liked to have heard what Murdaugh had to say. If he saw something in Francis Barthelemy's eyes, let him say so. This isn't what Unfair Isle was asking about, but just in terms of referees speaking, uh, you know, you'll make the concussed fighter talk two minutes later, yeah. but you won't let the referee explain himself. That really bugs me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree that, um, you know, even if the commission wants to protect the referee, then the have the commissioner ask the referee, what was your thinking in this? And then the commissioner can get up in the ring and sure. sort of say, well, I've talked to the referee. If you feel like in the aftermath, you want to protect the referee a little bit. Um, <laughs> it does make me think, though, of uh, um, not long after Bob Bennett became executive director of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. So this was like 2014 or so, probably. Um, he wanted to have greater transparency. And one of his first fights in charge was Brandon Rios against Diego Chavez. And it was a pretty horrid, foul-filled fight. And mm-hmm. and Chavez was disqualified in round nine. I forget who the referee was. But, you know, Bennett felt that he should front up and attend the post-fight presser. So he's like on the dais there. And there were questions about, you know, the disqualification and all of that. And Chavez was pretty mad, right? He didn't think he should have been DQ'd. He should totally have been DQ'd. But um, anyway, so while Bennett's talking, unfortunately, whoever was translating for Chavez clearly got something wrong and suddenly he's standing up furious pointing at bennett and yelling what did you say about my sister and um <laughs> the, oh boy the whole thing just kind of degenerated into chaos and i don't know but i'm not sure that bob bennett ever did another post-fight presser mm. after that that there you go that's just my unhelpful contribution to the discussion all right that was good we both managed to go a little off topic there but uh, all related to the question to some extent um exactly. All right, our third and final email. This comes from frequent correspondent Jamie at J underscore N Reb. We met Jamie in Canastota, uh, and he also writes for Rigside Seat Magazine a bit. Good guy. Anyway, Jamie asks, if you were stuck on a deserted island and only had access to YouTube highlights of one fighter to watch endlessly, who would you choose? So I think I might pick Diego Corrales because Hmm. A, he was never in a boring fight, win or lose. Uh, B, I'd get to watch Corrales Castillo over and over. <laughs> and C, his loss to Floyd Mayweather was, I still think, probably the best, the most virtuoso performance of Floyd's entire career. So mm. I get to see that a bunch, too. Right. So I think I picked Diego. Interesting. So my first instinct was to say Arturo Gatti for sure. obvious re- reasons. You know, the, the highlight highs are indeed very high. But I thought about it for another moment or two. And there are other fighters who were in a higher quantity of big fights who provided highlights at a higher skill level and specifically my brain came around to Manny Pacquiao who, who did mm-hmm. it all you know fight of the year type brawls scored amazing knockouts was on the receiving end of one amazing knockout yeah. there are some others to consider who were in a ton of great fights like Diego Corrales like Eric Morales Matthew Saad Mohammed, Roberto Duran Carmen mm-hmm. Basilio Evander Holyfield 
I can even see a case for Mike Tyson in terms of highlights. Those early yeah. knockouts are endlessly entertaining. But I think I'd go with Pacquiao. That'll keep me entertained maybe longer than any of the others. That's a good call, yes, because there were so many of them as well. Mm-hmm. So, yes, exactly. And there's still something about, like, watching him smiling and laughing on his way to the ring. <laughs> yes. And then turning into what Th- he turned into. <laughs> throw in a couple of Jimmy Kimmel karaoke performances. Yes, there you and, go. and it's a no-brainer that I'm taking yeah, Pacquiao. Yeah, no, you might be right. Yeah, I might have to go with you on that one. All right. Um, so many thanks for those questions and indeed for the questions we didn't um, get to today. Uh, All right. Uh, Somehow we've made it almost to the end of this podcast and it is time for this week's top five challenge. Uh, Eric, we have talked a fair bit already in this podcast about bad stoppages and about controversial referee decisions. We talked to Haseem Rachman last week about bad stoppages. I know it is a particular hobby horse of yours. Unless there's at least one eye hanging out of its socket, you don't like a referee to even think about a stoppage. <laughs> but just because it's sadist, it doesn't mean that you're always wrong, that there aren't, in fact, bad stoppages. So hit me with the five worst, the ones that have really, really pissed you off. Okay. All right. This will be fun. I can, I can, every single one of these will uh, be accompanied by a rant, which oh, is exactly. always good. Yeah. A lot yeah, of no, angry that, Raskin that, next week. Yeah. There'll be a lot of, there'll be twitching eyelids by the end of it. <laughs> Twitching eyelids. That's that's nothing. Again, as long as uh, unless at least one eye is hanging out, it's really not a big deal. Exactly. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We'll be back next week to talk about. I don't really know. Honestly, at this point, we'll find something. (laughs) Yeah. Won't be a pay-per-view. No. So we'll have something, I don't know, in-depth discussion of Virgil Ortiz. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. Or, or, um, or just we'll go very shallow again on a variety of topics. We're not bad at that, are we? No. The shallower, bad. the better. That, that's our wheelhouse, really. It, it really is. And not even so much as a wheelhouse, because that suggests like a fully completed True. and it's just just Should, a wheel. Is it time to rename the podcast Scratching the Surface with Mulvaney and Raskin or Raskin and Mulvaney? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Even that suggests an element of depth that isn't always there. <laughs> All right, we'll keep brainstorming surface. ways to really undersell what we bring to the table. <laughs> but there you go. Boy, I really hope our boss isn't listening to this one. Um, <laughs> all right, we will be back next week. That's all we know. Yes. Uh, unless our boss is listening to this one, in which case we can't. <laughs> and hopefully we will have Eric's top five list. But until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>